If a person goes in front of a, even a group of Muslims uh, or, or religious people and sounds very religious in a speech, there's something off-putting about that because we've mm-hmm. come to this conclusion that we maintain this ironic distance from big, big metaphysical truths. And that shows itself in the way we tell stories. That shows itself in the stories that we want to hear in the films that we want to see, in the way we, we celebrate and think about lives and define ourselves. Assalamu alaikum and greetings of peace. This is Imran Ali Malik, and you're listening to the Renovatio podcast. We're talking today about storytelling in the Islamic tradition. Our guest is Cyrus Elizargar, an associate professor of religion at Augustana College, who recently published a book entitled The Polished Mirror, Storytelling and the Pursuit of Virtue in Islamic Philosophy and Sufism. Cyrus Zargar wrote an article for Renovatio entitled The Secret of the Morality Tale, which looks at a famous poet, Sa'adi, to explore the place of literary ethics in the broader Islamic tradition. On a recent trip to Berkeley, California, Professor Zargar sat down with Safir Ahmed, the editor of Renovatio, for a chat about storytelling and ethics in the library of Zaytuna College. Assalamu alaikum, and I want to thank you, Dr. Zargar, for taking the time to visit with us and to record this podcast for Renovatio. Um, I want to begin with the central idea in the article that you wrote for Renovatio, um, which has to do with the relationship between storytelling and ethics, <clears throat> about how good stories can help address our moral challenges. And I want to quote a sentence or two you wrote in that article, and then I have a quick question for you about that. And regarding the storytelling, you say this, Storytelling has been, it seems, the most significant way we humans have communicated our norms, values, and expectations, as well as our heroes, antiheroes, and villains. We have done so not because stories simplify things, but because only narratives can represent the complexity of human circumstances and contexts, situatedness, as you call it. Mm-hmm. So my question is, help us understand this a little bit. Why do you believe stories are so crucial um, in shaping our ethics? That's a very good question. Well, um, I think it's because when we see characters or figures in stories, the decisions that they have to make um, and the context of those decisions matter in a way that they don't when we think about that moral decision abstracted from story. Mm -hmm. So um, Mm -hmm. it's one thing for me to present a problem to you or present even a legal or moral issue to you it's another for me to tell you about the situations that brought the person to make that decision. Right. Right. So let's talk about that is, itself. I mean, I think, for instance, in the Islamic tradition, generally ethics are seen as being drawn from Islamic law, from, mm-hmm. you know, from the legal scholars, basically. So th- what's the difference between the um, ethics we get from legal scholars versus ethics we get from storytellers? Yeah, well, and I think that... Um, historically, the way I see it, the two were the two worked hand in hand. The storytelling. So mm-hmm. there's a very rich tradition of ethical storytelling in Islam, wisdom literature, mm-hmm. um, where people explored um, ideas of good, bad. You know, what is proper behavior? What are the norms? But in a context where it made it, it made things much more lived and real than when when a legal scholar would write about them. The legal mm-hmm. scholars write is 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 doing a service in, in so far as uh, you know limits boundaries need to be set mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know there there are standards and things like that but 
but how does a person really come to make a decision when they're faced with mm -hmm. some sort of challenge? Well, they come to make that, they usually come to make that decision by thinking, what, what kind of person am I? And what, you know, what's, what does this decision mean for me? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and that's where they place themselves in a narrative. And that's why people tell narratives. So they'll tell narratives about saints. Um, that's a, the hagiographical mm -hmm. tradition is very rich in Islam. They'll tell, um, in the case of Saadi, like in the article, mm -hmm. um, snippets of, you know, um, sort of wise, uh, you know, snippets of sort of wisdom literature that focus on things people have done or things people have said. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the two worked hand in hand. And, you know, um, and they're not separate, but I, I think they serve different roles. So do you feel like the storytellers sort of um, learned from the scholars or, or in, in, they have a similar kind of understanding and then they're transmitting that through the stories? Well, I, I think I mean, it's, it's just not as clear yeah, as yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just, I, I see your, your question. I think it's just different uh, dimensions, you know. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the storytelling is, is everywhere. And there were there are legal scholar, you know. There's obviously like um, Saadi, you know. He knows he knows Islamic law. That's clear. So there, it's it's not that the two are separate. You can be a scholar and engage in storytelling, and it can be at a different level, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, in in Tasawwuf in Sufism, you'll see um, you'll often see that. Uh, well, let's say you know Abu Hamid Ghazali. Um, when will he bring in allegories or stories? Um, it's to drive home some sort of point that right. might be difficult to comprehend right um outside of the context of allegory like you know he he, let, he helps you visualize it right. well what is what does storytelling do it helps you visualize um and kind of place yourself in morality the situation, yeah almost. it helps you visualize yeah. it helps you grasp it yeah. so for me to tell you that being brave is good or or you know is one thing mm -hmm. but if i tell you a story about a brave person and put that in a context where you make it very real and palpable for you. That's a very different experience. And you can begin to model that. I mean, the, the idea of Sira, the idea mm -hmm. of Sunnah, it's based on stories, right? right. Um, the, the Quran, you know, the, uh, the stories of the prophets in the Quran. This is the same concept. You based a big chunk of your article on Saadi's work. Mm -hmm. So um, why don't you give us a quick example um, either from Saudi or from some other place, but I think um, of a story mm -hmm. that illustrates what you were just talking about, the, the, the idea of driving the point home and, and driving the, the moral lesson home. Sure. I'll, I'll, I can give you two. Um, sure. Uh, well, short run one from Saudi, which is, I think, how I begin the article. Um, you know, we can think of the issue of lying. This is how the article right, begins, right. right? Yeah. And Saudi begins his Kodestan with this... Uh, with this account of a king um, who's decided that a certain prisoner needs to be put to death. And mm -hmm. so the prisoner begins to curse the king. The king can't quite hear him. So he asks his viziers, what, is, what did he say? Mm -hmm. And the viziers, uh, one, and, and, um, one of the viziers who has a good disposition has mercy on this prisoner and knows that the reason that the prisoner is, is saying these things is because he's just been given a death sentence and he and it's a sort of a act of desperation you know so he lies he tells the king you know oh sir you know he he uh, um he uh begged for your mercy uh, you know he pleaded for your mercy citing this verse of the quran and um 
then uh, the, another vizier who's there, uh, who might have, I mean, one manuscript says he has a grudge against him, but for, for whatever reason, says, well, no, that's not true. You know, I can't, I can't tell you a lie. He, he cursed you. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so the king says, you know, I prefer his, uh, I prefer this vizier's lie to your truth because his was based in virtue and yours was in vice. You know, he had a good intention. He wanted to um, reconcile people. He wanted to solve problems through his lying, Mm -hmm. whereas you wanted to bring pain to someone through your truth, right? Right. So this is a great example of how um, uh, an issue such as telling the truth or lying is much more complex, right? And that's true in Islamic law. And these discussions mm-hmm. occur in Islamic law mm-hmm. of cases where a person might need to, you know, and it's it's a important meaning to to lie, and it's it's an important um, discussion in in ethics generally, but right. it's much different when you see it in that kind of context. And I can give you another one if you like, or but if we can, uh, another example of a story. Um, if you like, y- you know. know, go ahead, go ahead and give me one more. Well, the second one <clears throat> is is a much more extensive one, mm-hmm. and it is. Uh, the story, it's what I discuss in the 10th chapter of The Polished Mirror, the story of the judge and the Sufi. And why I'm fascinated by that one is that issues of law and virtue ethics mm-hmm. uh, come together in the context of this of okay. this story. So, I mean, it, it, the story's pretty simple. Uh, there's a man who um, is both poor and sick, and the doctor's at his house, and the doctor has, by you know, sort of reading his pulse, determined that this man's going to die. There's really nothing that can be done. Okay. So actually he lies too. He tells the man, you know, the only, your cure is just act on whatever gives you pleasure. Anything you want to do, do it. Right. Because he wants him to enjoy his last days. Right. Well, the man takes this very literally and he's under the impression that any impulse that he has, he has to act on. Mm. So he's walking along the riverbank and he sees a Sufi who's making wudu, making his ablutions. And he's, he's, I guess, annoyed by this. So he has the impulse to slap the Sufi on the back of his neck. And he does. He has to act on every impulse, so he, mm-hmm. he, th- so he thinks for his health. So he slaps the Sufi. The Sufi becomes enraged but holds back and doesn't retaliate, drags the old man to a judge, right? Right. <clears throat> um, I, I, won't, I, I won't get into the details of the rest of the story. But what ends up happening in this story and what you end up seeing is how com- complex moral, um, moral decisions can be mm-hmm. and how ethical reasoning ultimately comes down to not just perspective, but the character traits and the perfection of character traits that you bring to that decision. So you see in this account, for example, that the judge really thinks through each person's situation before he makes a decision. Right. And he, and you see that the Sufi, for example, has certain qualities of virtue. He's able to hold back the slap, but he lacks others. He wants vengeance, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it's an excellent. It's it's. I, mean, I think it's really an excellent example. And it's from Rumi's Masnavi. I don't. I don't know if I mentioned that. No, it's you didn't. Yeah, that's yeah. What I was going to ask you, but yeah. go ahead. Yeah, that's yeah. Great. It's from Rumi's Masnavi. It's from the sixth book of Rumi's Masnavi. It's mm-hmm. toward, toward the end. Um, but it's a it's a really great example of this storytelling. Because it's very rich, and so much is woven into it: legal discussions, mm-hmm. um, medical issues, f- even even philosophical ethics, f- philosophical virtue ethics, as I call it in the book. I mean, that's brought into it as well, and of course, um, the insights of Sufism, without a doubt. Are there stories that can actually, um, instead of leading us to think and and act positive in a good way, actually lead us astray? I think so. I think. 
Well, I think what a story does and what storytelling does mm-hmm. is it helps reinforce norms. Um, now, um, it depends on where the storyteller is coming from. So if you look at the novel, right. right, what does the novel do? Well, the novel, the modern novel, um, the model, not novels today, are really um, focused on individuals usually and their perspectives. Mm-hmm. And um, an individual, often in many novels, an individual's aspirations um, are center stage in a novel. There's a sense of individualism, right, mm-hmm. that's often promoted by novels. I'm not saying whether right. you think individualism is good or bad, it's a part of it. Right. It helps you place yourself in, um, in the world in a way where you, where you can even see yourself as part of a novel or you can see yourself as a character in a novel. And so what ends up becoming most important to you, and by the way, this is true of most of us who've grown up in, yeah. in the West or elsewhere even, what ends up being central to your life are your own personal aspirations. You see your life as your particular story where you have to achieve certain things and you're the main character, let's say, in a novel. You know what I mean? Right. Whereas I mean, pre- pre-modern societies... Um, and even in many traditional societies today and others, uh, 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 I mean, in other places, I mean, you, you know, people um, might not be so individualistic, right, um, culturally speaking. So anyways, the novel reinforces that. Stories reinforce that. Stories reinforce um, the, the norms from which they spring. So the, the, what's being promoted there. Now, um, when you get to the case of a person who's, let's say, between two worlds, between mm-hmm. two, is working, is working through... Um, two different moral moral systems and structures and and like a lot of uh let's say for example a lot of first and second generation muslim americans are for mm-hmm. example mm-hmm. right they're working through some something that let's say they're some some sort of system that their parents brought something, right. something and even their parents had to work through and then and they they can see two different worlds think about the way that a film can affect such a person right. the story in a film the narrative in a film can def, can um define norms and define reality in a certain way for them that appeals and whether you want to say astray or not is up to you Mm -hmm. but it can certainly change um change the way people see things and and it has an effect on subjectivity it has an effect on the way a a person let's say identifies right yeah and a very powerful one no i think you're right i mean i i I, one of the things that as I was listening to you, what made me think about something was in the 70s, and my first, you know, was in college at the time, I re- remember reading um, Ayn Rand's books. Mm-hmm. I mean, a fountainhead had a huge impact on mm-hmm. me. But now looking back on it, it was very negative sort of thing, because <laughs> it was all about the individual, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, and and so you, your point is well taken. I think it's a good point. Um, let's uh, talk about a little bit about this notion that you have... Um, that's really interesting about ethical <clears throat> values that are, can be applied universally or principles, if you will, can be applied universally. But you seem to argue more for sort of this um, contextualized in the, you know, uh, uh, or situatedness, as you call it, human um, uh, situations that we encounter and that you have to take those into account um, as the Saudi story you, you mentioned earlier does. Um, and my question is, if you're always looking for that kind of, um, you know, contextual understanding and that, that, that ethical uh, rules or principles might come out of that, 
based on each individual situation that there seems to be a little bit of a danger that that might lead us into moral relativism mm -hmm. you know um how where does where how does that stop how do you deal with that well a, i think a person can really have do do both and and often does both right so um even if you hold uh to universal truths or um, objective standards of morality and, mm -hmm. um, and I, I mean, it, it, let's say historically speaking, I mean, it, it, many, many Muslims have like the concept of Sharia has, there are certain, uh, universe, there are certain principles that, that run through it. Mm -hmm. Right. Still, when we're talking about the application, when we're talking about, let's say applied ethics, when we're talking about, um, living it out, mm -hmm. you'll find that, you have to to make decisions based on the moment and what you know to be true and you and if you have that and what makes a person um make let's say if you want to call it the right decision or do the right thing even if it's well do the right thing is is some sort of we can call it wisdom uh, but it's an ability to recognize the 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 universal Mm -hmm. see the universal, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but at the same time, know when, for example, exceptions must be made. Right. Know when, and it's a natural process. It's something that... It's a, it, it's a reasoning process. It's a reasoning, yeah, it's yeah. A re, but it's a reasoning process that's been done so many times before that the person in that particular moment doesn't have to mm -hmm. think mm -hmm. too much about it, right? That That's what I'm saying. So um, I'd like to, I mean, I, I'd like to give you an example. One doesn't come to mind. Um but I mean, even if you took a person who, let's say, um, takes Islamic law as uh, as somewhat rigid, um, mm -hmm. still that person will often find himself or herself in situations where they'll have to make plenty of ex exceptions and um, will have to judge based on the present moment. Right. That's that's right. the only way I was saying it. I'm not saying that it that morality is based clearly, you know on one's situation at that moment right right and that and the interesting part of that is i think that's why in islamic ethics you'll see um different issues usually come up in the storytelling context than in the books of law mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um so uh, or even forget storytelling right this is why if we call let's say al-mulakhlaq or and you know the tahrib al akhlaq the refinement of character traits you know if you, if you look at this science look at it as a science mm -hmm. very often muslim writers were able to focus on certain issues because they knew that some of the other issues were handled were being handled or dealt with in theology and in the study of islamic law so they they could focus in their books on specifically character based issues um, right. that's a, that's a, something that you see in, if you want to call it Islamic virtue ethics, that you don't see in Aristotelian virtue ethics, where the, the virtue ethics is being applied to all kinds of decision-making, whereas in Islamic virtue ethics, very often it is focused mostly on character issues where we know that that person will also have in mind Sharia. Does this make sense? Right. Yeah. And that's an interesting point you just made, because, I mean, I was thinking about the Western storytelling tradition for instance you mm -hmm. know um there is a long-standing one i mean mm -hmm. even shakespeare's plays mm -hmm. were rife with ethical dilemmas you know um and and so there's a learning that comes out of that mm -hmm. as well and you're just articulating you're saying that there's something for a religious person for a muslim person for instance um there there's 
there's a difference because that's grounded in Sharia. Yeah, it, it very often was and can be, yes. And so, which begs the question, do you have, um, is there a difference in how we learn um, people who are not committed, religious people, who are not mm -hmm. believers, mm -hmm. uh, possibly, or just secular mm -hmm. people um, who are not really committed to religion or not grounded in any religion? Um, do they, or is this, are, are they missing something in terms of their moral learning and, and values and reasoning powers? Well, that's a very that's a an excellent question and a big one. Yeah, because it really gets to the function of Sharia. But I will say this: mm -hmm. I mean, ask if if one were to ask oneself the question, does abiding by the limits of Sharia, if you just do that, will you at the end of it mm -hmm. be the ideal person that you want to be? I think if you really think about it you'll see that the answer is no. If you blindly but, sort of do it. Well, right? if you blindly do it or not, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. it, it only gives you the bare minimum. Okay. Right? Yeah. Okay. You pray, you fast, you don't kill people, you don't steal, you don't... Fine. Right. But that's not going to take you to the higher realms of contemplation. That's not going to... I mean, the, the, the you know, as you know, in like the Hadith and Nawafil and things like that, mm -hmm. I mean, the to get beyond that, and to get to a, a realization of God in your life, let's say, it takes much more effort than just being concerned with the Sharia, right? right. Because the Sharia is a very broad path, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. as you know, it's if we think of it as a circle, you know, yeah. to get to the haqiqah, you know, tariqah, you know this model. Um, it, it's inclusive, right. but, but is it, uh, you know, is it enough? No. Because there's very, we know people, you've seen people like this, I've seen people like this, we read, like this, we've read about them, people who can very gracefully dance through the fatawa and the rulings that you'll find in Sharia and still be more morally despicable human beings. Mm. We've all known them. People who are able to um, present themselves and even think of themselves as Sharia abiding, let's say, right. and yet they have a really base character. Mm -hmm. I mean, on the other hand, and this is getting to your question, mm -hmm. we do know people, we've seen them, we know them, they're our neighbors and our friends, whether, as you say, non-Muslim or secular, who aren't concerned with Sharia and yet are morally beautiful people. Yes. And it presents us with all kinds of problems, but I think what we can say is that, generally speaking, human beings need both mm -hmm. laws and limits and also a process of refinement and perfection beyond laws and limits. Right. Islam offers both. Um, Islam offers both in an integrated, uh, very comprehensive way. Can I say that that necessarily needs to be applied to everyone for that person to receive perfection? It's difficult to say that. Right. But at the same time, I can say that it's, that it's worth considering and studying the system mm -hmm. that, that mm -hmm. Islam provides where both levels are, are there. And integrated and have been have been uh, practiced and handed down and studied for generations in a very you know in rich texts um, right. grounded in tradition and scripture and metaphysics and cosmology and all of it comes together it's worth considering no that's a good point that <clears throat> and I want to ask one other quick question um, about that idea of Islam, um, as you said, has that. Um, what we seem to have lost in Islam, seems to me, is mm -hmm. the storytelling tradition. 
I mean, the stuff that you mentioned in your article and in your book, I mean, I think these are people like Rumi and Hafiz and Saadi and, you know, Ibn Tufail and mm -hmm. all these folks. I think these are people, um, where, are, where are the contemporary versions mm -hmm. of these folks, mm -hmm. right? Doing, because as you mentioned, context is important about mm -hmm. how do we make decisions we're being you were grappling with all kinds of issues today that people didn't have to mm -hmm. you know 300 years ago or a thousand years ago mm -hmm. so what does that do to muslims and where does that leave them when we don't have that and even those great storytellers and um, poets people are not that familiar with them mm -hmm. yeah this is a really interesting thing so storytelling narrativity it's still very much a part of our lives. Mm -hmm. And if you look at social media, Twitter, Facebook, and the stories that people are telling about themselves and their lives and their experiences, whether they're dealing with Islamophobia or um, dealing just with being Muslim in America, it's still very present. But you're, but the way I'm taking the word storytelling, I think this is how you meant it, is the very traditional kind of wisdom literature right. storytelling, right? And it's very interesting that you should say that. So... Um, Walter Benjamin, um, the philosopher, was of the opinion that as we move toward uh, more fragmented lives, mm -hmm. um, as we move from from very real sort of tightly knit communities to communities that are linked together, what's been you know, Benedict Anderson calls the imagined community, where we're linked together through something else, some imagine, let's say, nationalism or whatever you want to. Okay. Um, as we move in this direction, his prediction was that storytelling would die. That kind of storytelling, the mm -hmm. traditional, let's say, epic storytelling. Right. 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 Um, because we look for different things. And this gets back to what we had said, that storytelling uh, reaffirms norms, the, the norms from which it springs. And the lives that we're living today, there's an ironic distance that we have to... Uh, our reality, right? Um, you know, if a person goes in front of a, even a group of Muslims uh, or, or religious people and sounds very religious in a speech, there's something off-putting about that in certain contexts, unless it's in a church or a mosque or something like that. But if, if it's in some sort, because we've made that distinction that we, as secular beings, that we all have to be, we live in, we, we're living in this secular world. And as secular beings, we've sort of come to this conclusion that we maintain this ironic distance from big, big metaphysical truths, mm -hmm. right? And that shows itself in the way we tell stories. That shows itself in the stories that we want to hear in the films that we want to see, in the way we, we celebrate and think about lives and define ourselves. Can, can it be changed? Can it be altered? I don't know. I don't, I, I don't see that happening. In fact, I see, the, I see the, the current moving much more in that direction. Right. Yeah. I mean, my, but to your point, I mean, I think my question was more, what are we losing? Because, you know, um, I recall, you know, um, a few years ago, Dr. Sayedis and Nasser had uh, given a talk on metaphysics. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things he said um, in his talk was that both, he was talking Christianity and Islam have lost their metaphysics in many ways. Mm. And so, but the way metaphysics used to filter down the traditional world mm. was through arts. Mm -hmm. Everything from architecture to music to poetry, especially, mm -hmm. and, and, and literature um 
and that's how the average person sort of grasps the metaphysical realities. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a parallel to what you're saying in terms of how we we, we come at more um, moral principles and, and universals? Um, and and have, are we losing that in the same way? That's a very good question. I don't know. I do know that we generally you'll find people sort of seek some sort of refuge mm-hmm. in more traditional types of whether you want to call it storytelling or in in tradition mm-hmm. um, from that sense of loss that you're describing whether you loss of thinking you know thinking in, in terms of your place in the world as having some metaphysical significance or the loss of real community or when people seek refuge, they turn to tradition and they turn to the past, which seems to indicate that there is some issue with the modern way of living, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Where you, f- that people often feel like the remedy is in traditional ways of doing it. So yes, I think there is an effect, um, but it's much, much larger. It's it's a much larger movement of society in a certain direction, right? Um, and th- I think the best we can do is if someone wants that richness in their life and they want their life to be meaningful, in the metaphysical sense, meaningful. Then, so far, it has seemed that the way to do that is to know human history, know philosophy to think about these concepts, bring them into your into your life, and that's you know what people have been doing. And if it be your tradition, then connect to that tradition, you know, and, and try to bring it into your world. But it's a remedy yeah. process, you know, yeah. So <clears throat> I want to close with one, one last question. Sure. Uh, picking yeah. up on what mm-hmm. you just um, said, which is for, let's talk about Muslims, um, and you mentioned earlier the Sharia is, you know, can give you some basic grounding and all mm-hmm. of that, but that's not the end of it, you mm-hmm. know, um, that you have to end into. For people who are looking to understand these things, uh, metaphysics, but also ethics um, in the tradition better, um, what advice would you have about what? How do you access that tradition, or, or how? Do, what can we people read or do or think about? You know, what what should they be looking at? What sh- should they be uh, thinking about? And how can they um, educate themselves in in that sense? My, yeah, that's a great question. My um, advice would be that the reasoning process is again going back to that word, you know, the situatedness is mm-hmm. about your situation. I, my advice would be to look at the questions you have. They've come from somewhere. You're every, each one of us is on this intellectual journey, and, it's, and we're on it together, but we're also on our own because we each have our own questions, and we've all been in our own particular situations. Look at the questions you have. Someone has almost, without doubt, had those questions before. Right. You know? <laughs> Yeah. Look at the questions you have. See which one is bothering you the most. Is it the problem of evil? You know, mm-hmm. is it um, th- about your historical situation? Is it a post-colonial issue? Is it you know social injustice issues? Or is it qu- is it questions about language, right? Um, or ex- is existence itself? Take that question, that one question, and pursue it. And in your pursuit, be open to the idea that. It wasn't just Muslims who asked that question, but 
you know, Greek philosophers, German philosophers, Chinese philosophers, all around the world, people have asked this question. The knowledge, you know, is your is the is the inheritance of the believer. Wherever the believer finds right, that knowledge, yeah. right? That that knowledge is is yours for the taking. Yeah. Search for it everywhere. Don't and include in your search the Quran and the Hadith. What and probably one of the most um, probably one of the most fascinating things is when you find the answer to your question in some, let's say, philosophical tradition or some literary tradition, and then you go back to the Quran and you see it there, and then you read the Quran again in this new way. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and now the Quran has become this very, very, which it is, multi-layered text, whereas before you read that ayah and you thought to yourself one thing, now you realize that that question was mentioned in the, was addressed in the Quran as well, you know? Yes. And it gives a very, very, it gives a complexity to your reading. So that would be my advice. That's a great answer. On that note, um, I want to really thank you for taking the time. Sure, thank you for having me. To come by and joining us. Thank you. And for that enlightening conversation. This is Safir Ahmed for Anamashio. Assalamu alaikum. For more enlightening conversations like this one, please visit anavatsio.zaytuna.edu. Thank you.